Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we react to the game of the season, the title decider at the Etihad as Manchester City run out big 4-1 winners over Arsenal. Arsenal completely under-deliver. It's a Manchester City masterclass. Is that the title over? We'll also be talking about Chelsea, who lose their fifth straight game under interim boss Frank Lampard. How bad has this period been for his reputation? And could Mauricio Pochettino be the perfect manager to take over from him at Stamford Bridge? We'll talk about the bottom of the table with a massive win for Nottingham Forest. Leeds and Leicester share a point. And congratulations to Sheffield United who make it back to the Premier League. This is the game. Hello again. Welcome back to the game podcast. I'm Hugh Wizencroft. Hope you're all well. I'm alongside Gregor Robertson, Tom Allnut and Jonathan Northcroft. Um, partially through this midweek round of Premier League games because we we really couldn't miss out on reacting immediately to the game of the season, really. The fixture of the season, if you like. Manchester City against Arsenal. Build as a title decider and it could well end up being that way. It finished in a big 4-1 win for Manchester City. Pretty much... A masterclass from Pep Guardiola. Um, the Premier League leaders, Arsenal, were dealt a huge psychological blow at the Etihad Stadium. Four league games without a win for Arsenal now. So um, not just this game. I think the last few matches now compounding to a point where some may argue uh, they have bottled the Premier League title. I am not one of those people, but we have to reflect on how things went because Arsenal were so far off it. Um, Just to say positively for Manchester City, it is now seven straight Premier League wins for them. Uh, They have now won 12 straight Premier League matches against Arsenal by an aggregate score of 33 to 5. And crucially, they are just two points behind the leaders with two games in hand. Not far to go, of course, in the Premier League title race. So where should we begin? Jonathan, I'll start with you. Is this the kind of Arsenal performance that does warrant the bottler's tag. You know, defeats can happen. Um, I think draws can happen as they did in the past few games when you're not quite at it. But for a game of such magnitude, Arsenal never really showed up. Yeah, I'm afraid to say that's right, Hugh. Um, I mean, as a a kind of title decider, a game we looked forward to all season, it 
it was a, it was a damp squib in some ways. I mean, City's play was magnificent, and you could marvel at that. But it wasn't the contest that we we'd hoped for, and 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 that was partly down to Arsenal as much as it was down to City's brilliance. And the bottling thing's interesting. It, I mean, that the the common um, perception of this and history will probably say that Arsenal did bottle it because they were eight points ahead and they were in such a a big um, commanding position. Um, it's, a, it's a funny one because I wrote at the weekend that, that their problem actually hadn't been bottling it per se, in, if you think about those games against Southampton and West Ham and Liverpool, because bottling it means lacking courage, lacking um, conviction to try and take something. I, I felt in those games they were in far too much of an emotional state. They were too risky. They were too confident. They were playing like a kind of immature team and they weren't playing with any control. Last night they bottled it. I mean, they 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 did lack courage. They didn't assert themselves. They didn't risk anything. They were frozen in the headlights of a magnificent football team. The Michael Arteta was frozen in the headlights of a of a superior force in Pep Guardiola, and they you know we, we can unpack it. Um, it was probably epitomised in the mismatch between Rob Holding and Erling Haaland, but it was epitomised in in you know hundreds of little moments where City were quicker to the ball, uh, where City had more courage with their passing um, and, and where Arsenal didn't impose themselves. So a really sad end, I think, because it is the end to um, Arsenal's season. I think overall, you know, they've had a magnificent effort to get here, but when they reflect on it, um, for different reasons, they haven't handled this these last four games very well. Um, and, you know, they always say, don't leave yourself with regrets. Well, they'll have so many regrets about last night's game. Greg, your thoughts? Um, from the Arsenal perspective, just picking up on what Johnny said, um, regrets for Arsenal, will, will they see it that way or will it be, um, I guess, something more aggressive, for want of a better word? Um, will it be less regrets and more self-loathing? <laughs> um I like to hope it would be just uh, you know some wistful regrets, but there might be a bit of of, uh, of self-loathing going on. Um, I agree with Johnny. I think like it's hard to say that Arsenal kind of. I know that everyone wants to reach for this term bottling it, but I feel like they kind of they definitely froze last night. They froze. They looked like a team of like subordinate little boys compared to. Uh, City's juggernaut, and like you watch watching people like like Haaland and like uh, De Bruyne just grab the game by the scruff of the neck and like impose their will on it and rise to the occasion. Like De Bruyne always rises to these occasions. The contrast between that and Arsenal's kind of I don't know. They just didn't look. They didn't look like they they felt they belonged on the same pitch as them. That's how bad it looked. I thought. Um, and so that is a sad end because it has been an extraordinary like season. This is a surprise to everyone. We have to remember that. Um, they could still end up with 90 points, which is the same as the Invincibles of 2004, uh, same as their haul. They've already ac- accumulated as many points as uh, Wenger's title winners from 2001, 2002. This is just a new era. This is like you have to be almost perfect and you have to match City. And when it came down to it, 
when it came down to the kind of crux and the pressure rose. I don't want to say they bottled it, but they they didn't have the same belief. They didn't they didn't believe that they could they could pit Manchester City. They didn't believe it. And there's little factors that play into that. We've spoken about Saliba's absence. Uh, you know, when we reflected, I've said this last week, could they cope without Jesus? They did. Could they cope without Party? They did for spells. Um, could they cope without Saliba? Saliba? And like, even asking that question seems daft because he was a complete unknown quantity until the start of the season. And how Rob Holding is their backup centre-half. Yes, they could have moved Ben White in if Tom, Tommy Asu hadn't been injured. That might have been a different ploy. But they were light in that area going into the season upon reflection. And ultimately, that's been one big issue in the last few weeks, which has cost them. Yeah, I do agree. I mean, I think uh, Arsenal looked scared, I think. you know, There was a moment, like I think it was in the first half, when, when Holding was kind of chasing back and uh, he had kind of Haaland on his tail and he just kind of, you know, lashed it into the stand, you know, very quickly. And it just kind of felt like Arsenal a few weeks ago wouldn't have, wouldn't have done that. You know, they would have played it out, would have found a, found a gap. It, it, it kind of felt that they were just sort of rattled from the start. And whether that came from the early goal or whether it came from their form in the last, you know, few weeks, I don't know. But this wasn't the same Arsenal that's kind of been playing teams off the park all season. It wasn't even the same Arsenal that were playing at home against City when actually they kind of played really well in that match and really dominated a lot of the game. They were just immediately on the back foot in this match and, and they just never really managed to assert themselves. And I think, I agree, I mean, you know, the broader picture here is Arsenal have had a fantastic season. No one can deny that. What an amazing title challenge to, to take City all the way like this. But equally, I think they will have regrets. I mean, last night, I think that, you know, some of the big players that we've really been praising all season saying, you know, they've been absolutely sensational, didn't really show up. You know, you look at someone like Odegaard, for example, I didn't think he had a good game. Jesus... <clears throat> excuse me, didn't have a good game. Zinchenko as well. I just think, you know, these in these big games and on these big occasions, you really need your your headliners to deliver. Um, and if you look at the City team, De Bruyne was fantastic, Harlan fantastic. Arsenal's guys just didn't really show. Um, and I think I think they will look at it and think we didn't perhaps if we'd given our best and we and we and we'd lost, fair enough. But I, I thought Arsenal were were way off it last night and. Um, you know, in the end, City just basically steamrolled them all the way through. I totally agree with what you're saying there, Tom. I, I looked around, you know, the names that you mentioned as well, but even the likes of Saka, Thomas Partey, has not been great of late. Um, you know, Granit Xhaka, all of his experience you, you hoped would help them. You know, in the end, it looked like there were so many niggly bits when, you know, the game had stopped that Arsenal were kind of looking for some way to engage Manchester City because they couldn't do it when the ball was in play. And that was the sad part for me. And, and Jonathan, I, I think tactically, we almost have to reflect on Mikel Arteta's approach because it became clear early on that Manchester City weren't going to be able to play their natural way. I think John Stones discussed it at the end of the match. You know, we usually build up from the back. Um, they were right on top of us. So, you know, we, we had to go longer and... Um, I think it was cleverly put on the radio or TV last night as as bypassing the press. Uh, it used to be called long ball, but there you go. Um, but yeah, they went directly to Erling Haaland, which was a plan B that, I don't know, maybe Mikel Arteta should have seen coming. Certainly, though, it didn't feel like he reacted to it because Arsenal, excuse me, Manchester City did have a lot of joy in that area, particularly in the first 25 or so minutes. And maybe I expected a little bit more from Arteta reacting to that. What did you make of his his night in the dugout? 
Yeah, I, I, I was like you, Hugh. I expected a lot more too, especially because this was the fourth time these teams have played this season and um, you'd have expected a little bit uh, of innovation or something different from Arteta. Instead, the innovation, it all came from Pep Guardiola. And we should we should remember this, actually, next time we talk about Pep overthinking things because, yes, it backfires sometimes, but more often than not, what you see is him coming up with new um, or or at least a rehash of old tactics, which is the long ball stuff we saw last night. But we see him get it right more often than, than not through his his tactical intelligence. And it was it was fascinating um, that, to watch the way that they, they, they played the game City almost in different stages. You know, there was that first sort of phase, sort of 10 to 15 minutes where they, they did invite Arsenal on. You also had De Bruyne playing in a much more advanced role, you know, not as a number eight, but, but as a number 10, with Gundogan sitting beside um, Rodri to give them a sort of solid base. And, and what De Bruyne was doing there was was getting behind um, Partey uh, and, and in between the lines there, knowing that Arsenal would sort of come forward and press and they were leaving him him there as, a, as the old-fashioned second striker to pick, to pick up Haaland's knockdowns that worked brilliantly but then you had another phase where they got their goal and they went into possession mode and and it came up on 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 the screen that they'd had 91 percent possession in, in a five minute phase around about the 15th to 20th minute and and city just kept changing shapes kept changing what they were doing kept finding the the, the weaknesses um and arteta kept not reacting to it kept sort of plugging away um, trying to 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 do the thing that Pep Guardiola knew he was going to do, and and in some ways it's admirable, trying to to go and be positive and win the game, and we're going to play our game, and we're not going to play anyone else's game. But I'm afraid when you're against someone of Guardiola's level, it's probably not enough. Um, you, you are going to need to react that in-game management. Um, you see, some coaches are amazing at it. Ancelotti's amazing at it, and that's one reason that Real Madrid pose a threat to City because he's brilliant at reacting within a game to, to what the opposition are doing and doing something different himself. But Arsenal did nothing, partly hampered by the lack of strength and depth that we, we've been talking about. But I mean, one of the biggest symbols for me of, of how much City dominated that match was Martinelli, you know, who's, who's possibly been Arsenal's greatest goal threat. I don't know if he's a top scorer, but he's a cutting edge, really. I think he had 11 touches. Played for about an hour, had eleven touches, complete shutout. Might have touched the ball in the box once, but it was a, it, it was just a domination by, um, by Pep over, um, his old apprentice, and and it will be sore for Arteta. Gregor, I'll ask you the same question when it comes to what Guardiola did on the night. What did you make of uh, the tactical play from from him and Manchester City? Yeah, as Johnny outlined, that kind of period in the first half where the where they they'd gone gone in front, and they also slowed the speed of the game down, like you know, remarkably. There was moments where they were standing on the ball, and you know, either uh, Ederson just standing on the ball, or Diaz or Stones, almost inviting Arsenal on. And when they weren't really playing it, they just were, you know weren't really playing the game. They were content to knock it around, and then they would up the pace. There was a moment where John Stones just spied a little opening and here down the down the line, uh, carried the ball down the line. Um, and there, there were moments when they went direct to Haaland, as Johnny outlined there. So it was it was fascinating. And as you say, like <laughs> we're, we're suddenly seeing City playing playing direct and um, utilising a weapon that they've never had before, basically. Um, so they, they were just 
dominant in every sense, and and Arsenal knew it. That's fundamentally what what the truth of the matter is. Um, and I, I look. I'm also quick. I'm also slightly hesitant to be like critical of Arsenal for that. Like I know that might sound daft. They were in a position where the title was in their hands, but they've never been in this position. No one expected them to be in this position. The mind goes back to City's first title win in what was it, 2012, mm. and how they nearly threw it away in the final day, but for a moment of magic and like that will be remembered forever. Uh, like. The pressure counts, it really tells, and Arsenal have got a way to go to kind of bridge that gap. I was reading somewhere that in the past five seasons, City have finished on average 27.8 points above Arsenal. They've done a, a remarkable job in closing that gap, and like they will learn from this experience, but they probably also need a couple of players with the kind of right stature. And maybe I'm not, you know, it's hard to say in a Premier League winner, but players who have experience of being in teams that are challenging for titles consistently because they haven't had any of those and you can see Zinchenko and Jesus have and they did bring something but they were bit part players in most of the city's title challenges um, they've been in and around it, they knew what it, t- it took but um, ultimately as we've outlined, even their influence has waned in, in recent weeks and I, you know, as I said last week people roll their, roll their eyes when you talk about experience but we've seen it, we've seen it count it's not just about, you know, yes, there are sitting on a different level in terms of their spending and, and also the quality of their players, but what we saw was a belief that they were going to go and steamroller Arsenal, and Arsenal kind of knew it was coming. Tom, when we look at how things have gone over the last three or four weeks for Arsenal and leading into this game, um, you know, a lot of fans reflect on the difference between City and Arsenal's resources, not just financially, but in terms of the playing squad at this point in time, you lose William Saliba, in comes Rob Holding. Even the game against Southampton, Granit Xhaka was ill. Fabio Vieira came in. There was a, a big drop-off in terms of quality. Um, that we just have to kind of sit back and say, even if we dissect the tactics and approach and if Arsenal could have done better, ultimately what's cost them is injuries um, and the lack of depth. Is that fair? I think it's fair to some extent. I mean, I think... I think- Basically, Arsenal didn't lose the title last night. They they lost it, obviously, in those games against Southampton and West Ham. I mean, they always had to keep this title race basically about uh, not going head-to-head with City. And as soon as it became a showdown about this match, I think they were always on a hiding to nothing. The, 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 the advantage they had a few weeks ago is that they had such a good lead that this match looked like it might even, they could lose it and still win the title. As soon as it became a decider at the Etihad, I think they were they were always going to be struggling. The, you know, the fact is, if they'd beaten West Ham, if they'd beaten Southampton, two teams they really should have beaten, they could still be six points clear. You know, right now with City's two games in hand, you know they could still be right there. Um, I think they'll look back on those two games as the ones that were really the ones that cost them the title. Even the one at Anfield, you know, against a Liverpool team who are not not the same Liverpool as they have been in the past. Those are the three matches that really cost them here. I mean, yes, it is true. There's no doubt. You know, look at Arsenal's squad. You compare it with with Man City's. They're just, you know, nowhere near it in terms of the depth. Um, you know, and we've already talked about the injuries and Saliba basically being being one too many. Um, and I think as well, you know, you, you have to say that Arsenal have to rectify that because next season they're going to be in the Champions League. They're probably going to go further in the domestic cups than they did this year. They've had a pretty light schedule this season, given the fact that they went out um, early in the in the in the cups in the Europa League as well. 
So, you know, they basically had it all their own way in terms of the actual calendar going into the Premier League. So next season, if it's going to be even heavier, they're going to need a bigger squad. Um, I mean, I, I think ultimately, you know, it, it feels unfair to point the finger at Rob Holding. You know, I think that I think the the issues are wider than that. You know, I think last last night there were there were other players not not stepping up, but that has definitely been a, a massive massive miss. You know, I think it's not just Saliba, but it's also the connection he has with Gabriel. I think it's the way he allows the rest of the team to play. Um, and tonight and last night, you know, that kind of isolated head to head battle against Haaland um, really left Arsenal short. Um, so yeah, I mean, listen. I mean, I think you know Arsenal will will look back on this, um, and, and I mean we we wait to see now because obviously they've got five games left, and I guess you know the big question is yes, do we think City are going to go on and win all of them? Probably, but are Arsenal going to win theirs? That's the thing. They've got to play Newcastle, they've got to play Chelsea, Brighton, Forest away is not an easy game, you know. So these are games right now. You know, looking at Arsenal a few weeks ago, you would have said yes, they're going to win all of these, but on the back of four matches without a win, um, suddenly these these kind of matches look a lot tougher. So. It'll be interesting to see if the title is even close now, and that could obviously help City in, in their in their pursuit of the treble if they're able to kind of rest players in, in the last couple of games in the league. That might help them in Europe as well. We'll come to whether the Premier League is is over uh, in a few moments' time. But Jonathan, I do want to take you back to Manchester City and two players in particular who were wonderful on the night and are beginning to form a magical relationship on the field as well. Kevin De Bruyne, Erling Haaland. At Haaland with 49 goals now in all competitions in his debut season uh, in England. Um, but it's becoming imperious now. How, how do you stop them? With incredible difficulties is the short answer. And it, it, it's, it's, it's right to pick them out because um, they, were, um, they, were, they, were, they were just, it was Son and Kane, wasn't it, at, at, at its best, or Van Persie and Rooney, or, or it, it was reminiscent of one of the great sort of partnerships we've seen and and speaking of Wayne um he he, he wrote about this in his column we spoke about it last week for the the Sunday Times column and and he he said that he felt one of the cleverest things the best things that Haaland had done going into City was making it his business to establish a connection with De Bruyne And, and he said you can see them um, if you just if you just watch the games and watch what's happening when you know there's a break in play or, or, or the ball's the other end, you'll see them talking to each other a lot. Um, you'll see them sort of discussing things that they're going to you know do movements and stuff throughout the game. And, and it was interesting that he picked up on that. Um, of course, what we saw last night was the roles inverting and Haaland becoming a supplier to De Bruyne. And it, you know it's actually a little scary watching. That side of game, that side of Haaland's game evolve over the last month or two, which suggests Guardiola is making him better and better without reducing his scoring power. Um, but when you have when you have De Bruyne's appreciation of space uh, and a knowledge of, of when to time a movement and, and and where to angle the run, and then you just have a, a beast like like Haaland who can hold off defenders and play to him. That's incredibly, that's incredibly powerful. And then equally, when you've got Haaland's running power and De Bruyne's ability to pick a pass, that's incredibly powerful. So it, it's a, a bit like Kane and Son, perhaps, actually. It's a combination where it doesn't matter which one's supplying the other. It, it's equally dangerous. And I'm afraid for the rest of the Premier League that this is just in its infancy, that we're going to see this partnership grow and grow the more they play together. Gregor, Erling Haaland, um, 
was channeling his inner Didier Drogba at times. Um, you did feel for 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 Rob Holding, but ultimately it's kind of a different dynamic. We we do see Holland on the shoulder and liking to run him behind a lot, um, and we've seen it throughout his career so far. The back to goal menace uh, hasn't really been his forte, but clearly he can do it. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's very easy to to point to to Rob Holding in the build up to that to that opening goal and say, you know, he got kind of ragdolled around. But I mean, I'm not sure who wouldn't have. I don't think Saliba could have done much to, to, to cope with that either. You can't get round him. Uh, you can't go over him. Uh, so you'd have to go through him. And you know, I think Holding tried that a couple of times too, and it didn't. That's not even easy in itself. Party tried it a couple of times. They got he got some right tussles. He's an absolute machine, and you know, there's not much else you can say. He's he's, he's almost unplayable at times. Like that's how that's how good he is. Um, and he, it also the kind of it's easy to overlook how good a touch and you know on the turn that was too, as he was holding. Holding, uh, holding off, and I get on the turn and then slipping through the boy, and it was it was magnificent play. But you know that that was clearly a, a, a t- also Ederson just sometimes just lofted a ball really high, uh, kind of hoping it would drop it around his around in his vicinity, and he can hold players off and and bring the Bruyne into play. It's clearly this is a this is a ploy, and why not use it when you have such a strength like that? Um, and two players who are intelligent enough to to link up like that, and also, as Johnny said, swap the rules. Haaland running, uh, De Bruyne would be the one to run in behind. Um, he's uh, it's ominous. It's very ominous. Um, I thought he was outstanding. But also, as I've said before, the thing that has really impressed me is is his work rate, the way he presses, and his willingness to continue doing that in games where. You know, unlike this, he's having a big impact. Where for 70, 70, 70, 80 minutes, all he's doing is pressing, and he's maybe had a dozen touches in the game, and he keeps doing it until the very end, and he might crop up, pop up with a goal. That that takes some mentality as well. So, do we think it's over? That's the big question. I think Tom Olnett, you kind of uh, given us your answer already. You think that's it for Arsenal? Yeah, I do really. I mean, I think, you know, the thing is, is that Arsenal's momentum now is, you know, so low. That's the thing. They're going to they're have to win all their games. Are they going to win them? I I have my doubts, you know. I mean, they're, they've got some tough ones. As I said, you know, Newcastle's going to be a really tough one. Um, but I, I think in the end, it'll be irrelevant. I suspect City will, will win all of theirs anyway. Um, I think it. I think it's over. The, I, I mean, you never know. I guess you never know. Um, Arteta was kind of clinging to the idea last night. You know that the momentum can change. You know, one game can 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 change everyone's uh, thinking and can 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 transform the belief of Arsenal or suddenly put doubts in the head of City. But it just looked last night like City were a team that. I mean, even at the end, it kind of. <laughs> I, I really noticed the City players. They weren't celebrating as though they felt like this was a huge result. Like it was a massive. You know. Um, titanic victory and I, I guess that obviously played into the fact that they knew they were going to win the last half an hour was extremely flat but I also just felt like it was almost like a, a match that they were so confident they were so relaxed that they were going to win this game that ultimately you know it wasn't a huge sort of surprise to them um, we've seen Arsenal kind of on their knees you know after the last kind of couple of, of slip-ups against West Ham and Southampton they've looked like a team that 
the, the belief is just kind of draining out of them now. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't see Arsenal kind of getting back um, in the last few games. Um, and I suspect City will, will win it in the end fairly comfortably. Last night, my uh, I watched the game, but my partner was sitting beside me. She was doing a bit of work on the laptop, uh, listening to, uh, I think, a podcast with her headphones on. At the end of the game, um, Erling Haaland and Kevin De Bruyne, I think, did the... No, John Stones, possibly, and Kevin De Bruyne did the uh, post-match interviews on TV. She hadn't really been watching the game. And she just went, who won? And I went, <laughs> I went they did. And she went, no, no, they didn't. Why aren't they smiling? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and and it was and it was kind of true. I mean, you didn't see the kind of jubilation that you maybe would have expected. And, you know, in Kevin De Bruyne's answer, it was quite simple. You know, we aren't top of the Premier League. You know, it's not like we went top tonight. Um, yes, it's in our hands. But, you know, until we're there, we're, we're not going to really celebrate. And that that maybe was also a measure of the experience of these run-ins that Manchester City have had, chasing from behind and, and knowing that until the job is complete, you know, it, it's not over. Um, and yet so many people today reacting as if it is, which I find an interesting juxtaposition that the people kind of central to it are not thinking it's over. Gregor, you kind of do as well. You doubt that Arsenal will win the, all of their remaining games? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it would be amazing if if both won all their amazing. I think both will drop points. I mean, in City's case, it may just be a draw, but uh, I think Arsenal actually have a bigger task now, not, you know, averting are really dispiriting end to the season, demoralising one that like might well have an impact going forward. Yeah, finishing um, third from here, you know, well, <laughs> you just couldn't sure. imagine yeah. it. I know, yeah, you know what I mean. Just to like, if if all the kind of noise is about them, you know, bottling it as 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 I say, that's what everyone seems to be keen to label them as. If if their their results kind of make that obvious if they really if 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 there's no response to this basically to this to this blip over the last few weeks um so i i hope that's not the case because they've been they've been great to watch this year and as i say they've been a um a huge improvement um it's been a great achievement actually getting to this stage and as i say i've said before they're just coming up against one of the most relentless teams in in premier league history um but yes, the answer is City will win the league now. Johnny, do you feel the same? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at the fixtures here. City's next three games, Fulham, West Ham and Leeds. And if they win those three games, even if Arsenal win against Chelsea on May the 2nd, by the time Arsenal kick off at Newcastle away, they're going to be four points behind. Um, and, and you wouldn't fancy them to win at Newcastle. Um, at, at the moment, so I think it could be it could be over before that final week, or certainly before the last couple of games. Um, and it's interesting that, that that city psychology that that you're all touching on it kind of puts me in mind of um, something Roy Keane said when he was part of those United teams, um, which was you know he, he he said we enjoyed our our title wins for about a day and then we moved on to the next thing and that's what this city group have got you know in terms of mentality they they just move on to the next one Guardiola moves on to the next one um and it's ideal for them actually given the Champions League quest that they're on that, 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 that it's, the cards are starting to fall this way because 
um, they now can focus on that Real Madrid semi-final. Um, I'd imagine from a point of real strength in the Premier League, and 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 um, you know make that the next the next part of the quest. You know what I'm going to say? It's not over, guys. Yeah. It isn't no. over. I don't think it is. Do you know when Newcastle went on that that run in the build-up to the Carabao Cup final? I think they drew five games out of six. I think the City game was Arsenal's Cup final and I don't think they cope well with the build-up to it, the pressure of it. I think it affected the, the games in, in the lead-up. But I think the Cup final, if you like, is now out of the way. And I think Arsenal can, can relax a bit, a little bit as well because I think people will believe that they are not going to win the title um, and that they kind of need to restore a little bit of pride, particularly for their fans. And I think they can do that and they can get some smiles back on their faces, start winning some games, get into a rhythm. And remember, they are a very good side, have played some excellent football this season and are basically playing, you know, once a week, you know, a couple of midweeks before the end of the season, but certainly don't have the schedule that Manchester City do. And it might be wishful thinking, but when I look at, at the games that City have to go, I still don't believe that they're just going to walk over everyone. Even away at Fulham is a tricky fixture. I'm not sitting here saying they're going to go to Fulham, even without Mitrovic, and, and roll them over. I still think they'll have work to do to win that game. West Ham are getting back towards their best, certainly feeling a lot better. Leeds fighting for their lives. Everton away fighting for their lives. Stranger things have happened in the running to a Premier League season. Chelsea, okay, haven't been great, but clearly have a lot of good players in their squad. So you never know. Might be Mauricio Pochettino in charge by then. Away at Brighton and Brentford, uh, or the two fixtures that I'm looking at most, I think they are tricky. They are the final two games of the season, obviously. And, and at that point in time, you sometimes feel like the juggernaut will be unstoppable in Manchester City, especially when they're you know, on their way towards lifting the title. But I wouldn't call it an easy run-in, despite the... you know. <laughs> Playing teams at the bottom of the league is one thing, but when it's this close to the season, when they are fighting for absolutely every point that they need to stay in the league, those fixtures become a lot more difficult in my eyes. So will Arsenal win it? I'm not going to say definitively yes, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion at this point. I do believe City have the potential to drop points in more than one fixture and it could be incredibly tight going into that final day. So Arsenal fans, do not give up hope, okay? You just need your your team to hold up their end of the bargain. But um, I had a final question here on this match that I think I'm going to leave. I don't want to do it to myself as a Manchester United yeah. fan. Um, <laughs> you know, oh, it's, tease. Only, it's only going to listen. It's only going to be worth talking about when they reach the Champions League final. They're second in the Premier League. Don't forget. So, so why would I even mention the word treble when we're talking about a team in two semi-finals? And second in the Premier League table, City fans will come to that when it, I think it, it warrants it. And at this point in time, although it could happen, uh, we'll save that conversation for a later date. Let's say that much. Um, but yeah, look, tough game for Arsenal at the Etihad. And I just hope the mentality isn't affected at this point going on because it could be a massive psychological blow. And as you point out, Gregor, you just don't want their season to peter out. I mean, I looked at the table today and I think they're sort of 16 points clear of the of third place, which is kind of remarkable given where they've been the last few seasons. So I uh, can't take too much away from them and what they've gone they've done during this campaign. So let's move on. Um, uh, a team that really I'm getting tired of talking about next. 
on the podcast because um, it's been a, a season of of indifference. I mean, insignificance. And are they even that big a club? Is really what I want to say. I mean, Chelsea <laughs> losing a fifth successive game since the return of Frank Lampard. Brentford winning at Stamford Bridge as they did last season. Brentford strengthened their position in the top ten. But it leaves Chelsea in the bottom half. They are 11th, six points behind Fulham, who are 10th, eight points behind Brentford after this match as well. But um, look, I, I, I don't want to be too harsh on Chelsea. I just think the bigger news concerns who might be their new manager. So we'll talk about the match very quickly before we come to that. Frank Lampard, Jonathan, he's managed hmm. to make them worse, hasn't he? Chelsea Did he? are worse. Did he, me? Um, it's a difficult one to talk about because of, you know, I, I like Frank as a person, I admire him. Um, and I, I felt that maybe up to now in this, this point, he, he'd been wrongly denigrated as a manager, albeit that, you know, didn't end well at Everton, but I think people forgotten last season. However, yes, he's made them worse. Um, it's been a dismal caretaker rain, I'm afraid to say. Um, I, I look at one thing, N'Golo Kante playing on the wing. What is what is that? What is that? One of the best, if not the best, um, all-round, but principally kind of ball-winning midfielders of, of, of his generation in a team that's useless at transitions, and he's playing him wide. I, I, that, that, that baffles me. I cannot get around that. Uh, he hasn't been able to galvanise them. Um, they do still have, you know, you look at every time they put a team out, you think, well, that's a lot of good players there. But of course, the, the all the changes that have been made um, in terms of, of recruitment have, has just knocked the spirit out of that, knocked the cohesion out of that that that, that club. That's not Frank Lampard's fault. That, that's squarely the owners. And also, you've got to say the directors of football, the, the five or six of them or whoever, because they've made these decisions too. And they, they made the decision to... Um, to, to, to get rid of um, Potter as much as the owners did and, and to chase Nagelsmann in a futile way and then to bring in Frank. So they, they've got to take their share of the blame too. And it's a difficult situation. Of course, it's been an impossible situation for, 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 for Frank. Pro- probably no matter how what he did, it wasn't going to be particularly successful. But you have to have to be honest, even as a, as a kind of Frank aficionado and say it has not been... Um, it has not been the the, 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 the the finest spell of his football life, shall we say. I think it could prove to be quite damaging for him, actually. Mm. Like, mm. Uh, yeah, you know, there are a lot of people who had those doubts about his sort of managerial uh, abilities. And, there, you know, there are shades of grey and all of that. He, he did do a good job at Everton last year. He did a decent job at Derby. He did a decent job uh, at Chelsea in his first, his, uh, his first spell. But decent, no more. Um, I'm not sure where he goes from here. Like we've always looked at this about what what this means for Chelsea, but I'm not sure what it means for Frank Lampard either. Um, it kind of just adds to the feeling that he's been parachuted into jobs that he was wasn't qualified for. This has been the most glaring example, and uh, has failed. So I think it could be quite damaging for him as well. Um, but from Chelsea's point of view. Yeah, look, having said all that, I agree that a lot of this is not, you know, Frank Lampard's fault. But when you you hire an interim manager uh, or a caretaker, or whatever, their their job is to galvanise 
Um, and he's done the opposite. They look even more disjointed, even more sapped of sort of energy and any semblance of cohesion and happiness on the pitch. Um, and I think they just look like they want the season to end now. Tom, is this damaging uh, Frank Lampard's reputation, whatever that might be, um, or is it damaging Chelsea more? I mean, I think at this point it's, it's, it's damaging Lampard more. I mean, when he took the job, I guess, you know, he probably thought there was not much to lose. You know, it was, it was, a, it looked like there was always a kind of uh, fairy tale possibility of a Champions League run that maybe, you know, if he could pull that off, then maybe, you know, he could be in contention for the job full time, that perhaps he could kind of bring an uplift for the results in the league, um, you know, and, and he could kind of depart with his reputation sort of slightly enhanced or even perhaps put himself in the frame for the job longer term. But incredibly, you know, he somehow sort of managed to take Chelsea down a notch even, you know, and and I think it's going to be difficult for him. I mean, you know, what kind of club now in the Premier League would give Lampard a job on the basis of his last, you know, on the last on, on the basis of his last couple of performances as a manager? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't see many teams in, in, in the top flight going to him in the championship, perhaps. But, you know, the, the quality of coaches now in the championship is so high you know I mean you know you don't get jobs in in that division easily either I mean perhaps he might have to go go abroad maybe um try and you know reestablish his reputation there you know away from the spotlight a little bit but um you know yeah I mean I think this has been a it's been a nightmare for Lampard no doubt I mean for Chelsea the whole season has been a nightmare so basically it couldn't really get worse um but yeah it, it definitely hasn't gone as anything like uh, how he would have hoped Only one goal in the five games, albeit two were against Real Madrid in the Champions League. Not great for Frank Lampard right now. Um, and we'll wonder who will come in to replace him. But very quickly, Gregor, a word on Brentford, who won 4-1 at Stamford Bridge last season and look set to finish higher than they did last season as well when they finished 13th. Um, they had a, a what, five-game winless run before this? Um, or was it six? But either way... Um, you know, it seems like playing against Chelsea at this point in time is the most fruitful fixture in the Premier League. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the European dreams kind of wilted a little bit, but um, it's been an extraordinary season for them. And, and you know, just reflecting on this game, they Brentford might have had, I think, 27% of the of possession. There was that stat that they'd taken the lead without having a shot on target <laughs> um, because obviously the the first goal was an own goal off uh, As- As- yeah. Laqueta. Scored with their second shot on target. Yeah. So, like, in Buemo. So, you know, these were things that Frank Lampard was keen to sort of trumpet after the game. But what Brentford were was everything that Chelsea were not in terms of, how you know, having an identity, cohesive, you know, everyone knowing what the, what the game plan was and executing it uh, and offering a threat. They, they offered a threat when, you know, they were... On the on the counter attack or or uh, hitting Tony or you know set pieces that's 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 what they're they're good at and they they do what they're good at well so like in that respect yes Chelsea dominated the ball yes they've got you know the expensively assembled team but it it all counts for nothing unless there is some sort of cohesion and buy-in and sort of guidance you know. Uh, an appreciation of what it is they're expected to do on the pitch. And Chelsea have been completely devoid of that for the majority of the season. 
So, Jonathan, let's talk about who might be seen in a Chelsea dugout very soon. Reports Chelsea are in advance talks to make the former Spurs boss, Mauricio Pochettino, their new manager. He was Spurs boss for five years, led them to a Champions League final, which, of course, they lost to Liverpool, sacked in November of 2019, 14th in the Premier League at the time of his departure. But they also went to the League Cup final in 2015, second in the Premier League in the 2016-17 season. He, of course, went to Paris Saint-Germain, won a league title there before being dismissed. But, you know, he has a big reputation in England despite not winning trophies here. Is he a good fit for Chelsea right now? Well, yeah, yes. I mean, look, he, he looking at the market, looking at the fact that, that, that they're not in the Champions League and that, that a lot of coaches are now, as we saw with Nagelsmann, quite um, sceptical about the, the project. Um, and given Poch's previous record and, and his personality, his history, um, it, it's not a bad um, option for them. It's, it's probably the best around. But it, it kind of highlights the dysfunction there. They could have appointed him, of course, um, when they appointed Graham Potter. Instead, it's not like Poch is the bright new thing of, of, of coaching. He's been he's been there for a while, hasn't been hired by a top club, um, which... You know, might be a reflection of 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 I think the, the the sort of terms of his payoff from PSG made it difficult for um, other clubs to hire him, but might also be part of the the, the a sort of view in the game that look this guy's really good, but he, is he quite at the level of of Klopp, Guardiola, blah blah blah? Maybe not. Um, it's about it's four four or five years since Poch was at the real top of of the game. I'd say he did win that title with. PSG, but he also managed to not win a title with PSG, albeit he arrived mid-season. But that's quite an achievement to not win a title with PSG. Um, and when I when I think of what he did at Spurs, um, it was it was with uh, a tight band of players who he inspired and he 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 made them great in the sum of their parts. And it was an incredible job he did there. But in a way, it was what Graham Potter did with Brighton, you know, small band of players, um, motivating them, making them better than than, than their individual um, parts. He's going to have to go into Chelsea and face the same problems that Potter did. He's going to have to adapt that management style to this enormous squad and this sort of very strangely structured club with all its execs and, and different voices from the outside. So that's not going to be easy for him. Um, what I've said until now sounds like I'm very down on Poch. I'm not. I, I loved what he did at Spurs. I loved watching the football. I'm, I, I'd love him to be able to do it again somewhere. I'm just not sure um, he's going to be able to do that at Chelsea. Um, and I'm just not sure if he's, you know, maybe he's lost something along the way. I don't know. But it's a while since he's been at the top. So best of best they could probably get at the moment but it's not an appointment i look at and go oh well, wow they can be back in the big time it makes me think let's let's see how that one goes tom what do you think i can i can see why chelsea are going for pochettino um i'm not quite so convinced the other way around whether this is the right job for pochettino i, I think when he left psg someone pretty close to pochettino said to me that he basically kind of left and said never again you know never again will they um, take a job like that where the club uh, project isn't clear, where the structures are. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. 
You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Aren't, you know, obvious where there's not an effective line of command. Um, and you kind of look at it and you think, what is the one club in the world right mm. now that is kind of close to the chaos of PSG? And I think you would probably circle Chelsea. Um now, that might be unfair on, on the new ownership. Let's see. I think it's still the early stages. Maybe they would claim that we're trying to put the right people in place. We're trying to put the right structures in place. Um, we're prepared to give the backing to the right manager who comes in. Let's see. You know, maybe the judgment there has to kind of be held a little bit. But in terms of, of Pochettino, I think there is risk here. You know, I mean, if I think about the things that Pochettino needs to be a, to, to be a success, I tend to think he needs a kind of a tight, close-knit squad, which obviously you do not have at Chelsea. Um, he obviously likes to bring through young players, which maybe he will be able to do. Um, you know, he seemingly is a big, big fan of Mason Mount, for example. So maybe we'll see some players like that really shine under him. I wouldn't be surprised to see that. Um, he manages upwards pretty well. I mean, I think, you know, he, he he's one of the only managers who's kind of managed to last under Daniel Levy for, you know, more than two or three years. And, and that relationship is still pretty good. He still has a pretty good relationship with with the hierarchy, even at PSG. You know, he's watching World Cup manage, uh, matches with uh, Al-Khalifi in, in December. Um, so, you know, maybe he's well, well suited to kind of the politics at Chelsea as well. But I just think I look at the kind of the squad and the chaos at Chelsea. And I wonder if this is the right job for Pochettino. I can see why he's going for it. It's the Premier League, it's London, it's a big club again. Um, and, I, and I imagine maybe there will be a, an uplift. I, I guess one of the big advantages you'll have next season is it's very rare to take a job like Chelsea, where, you know, even finishing, what, fifth, fourth next season would, would kind of be considered a, a relatively decent season on the back of what we've seen this year. So the expectations are so low. But I imagine he will be given time, you know, he will be given time to kind of bed in. He will be given time to kind of trim that squad down to a, to a group that he thinks that he wants. But I think it's also important to remember this isn't the same Pochettino that took over at Spurs in, in 2014. You know, he's changed as well. We're nearly a decade on now. You know, he, his, his style of play is slightly different. You know, when he took over at Spurs back then, he was a real kind of early zealot of the kind of pressing revolution. Um, you know, he was very able to sort of um, define the kind of personality of his squad exactly how he wanted. You know, people like Adebayo were immediately were immediately cut. You know, he brought through kind of academy players. I don't know if he's going to be able to do the same thing at Chelsea as that. And, and obviously there are questions for him to answer in that regard. Is he, as Johnny says, is he a manager who is capable of managing these big clubs with big players, with, you know, complicated personalities and bloated squads? And that is a... A doubt that he has to has to answer. Um, I can see why Chelsea are going for him. Uh, for Pochettino, I think it, I think it's a big risk, but and it's an important job for him. It has to go well, you know. I, you know, it is now four or five years since Pochettino's has done anything particularly impressive, um, and I think if this job doesn't go well, then he'll find it difficult to be uh, attracting the kind of real elite European clubs again. He'll probably be going down a level again, back to the sort of Spurs. Uh, severe that kind of level rather than these kind of European giants so I think it's a really important job for him just as much as it is for Chelsea uh Gregor I think it's um <laughs> it's a yeah 
I, I love Mauricio Pochettino. I'd love to see him do well. I, I would have loved to see him become the Manchester United manager. I think he's good for Chelsea because of his personality, in which he's such a lovely bloke that um, it, it's very hard to hate on him. So if results next season aren't going brilliantly well, I think he gets that time because he's he can manage the fans. He can manage the media very, very well. And of course, most of the media you know, they, they have a positive relationship with him, which means that they, they find it hard to go at him in the uh, in the papers, for example, or on TV or radio. So I think he has that grace period, which I think Chelsea need. And Todd Bowley certainly hasn't been given and probably doesn't even deserve. So in that way, in terms of managing all of the noise that will be around Chelsea, I think Pochettino is a, uh, is a great manager. But a bit like Johnny, you know, I think... The question that I had in my mind is, does Pochettino going to Chelsea make them credible top four candidates for next season? And I can't really say that. I don't think he's that good a manager that I think he will immediately transform this squad. But what I think is really positive about him coming in is that a big part of the success that he's had in management is, you know, his man management, his treatment of players, young players, um, and building a bond with them. And, and now, look, I, I mean, to be honest, he's a bit of a um, a kindergarten teacher at this point in time because he's got so many youngsters running around uh, the playground, if you like, you know. He's got to forge a relationship with them so that they listen to him and do what he asks them to do. And I, I do think he's the right guy. I've suddenly got a picture in my mind of kindergarten cop and Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know why. <laughs> but, um, but that's where he is. I mean, that that is where he is. And I do, I do think he would be good at that role. I mean, yeah, right. He's gonna to have to spread the spread the love around. It's like whoever whoever comes in, that's their biggest task. It's yeah. like their biggest task is to whittle this down to a core group that you can work with on a daily basis, uh, who you think are gonna help Chelsea, you know, challenge again, as you say, for for the top four as a minimum, um, and and also kind of what you do with the rest of them, like, and and that's gonna need. You know, they hit a lot of help from the club too, because they're going to have to farm so many players out on loan. They're going to have to possibly cut their losses on some, uh, and they also, as we know, are going to have to raise some money. And you know, Tom Roddy reported that he, in discussions, that Pochettino told the Chelsea's hierarchy that they should build their sort of their philosophy going forward on on homegrown talent. You know, which is there've been so many of them come through in recent years, and and, and the, you know. In contrast to that, as we know, the players who are going to turn the biggest profit for Chelsea are are the homegrown players that you know many of us thought they're going to probably have to sell a few of in the summer. So there are a lot of things, just like with Graham Potter, that just don't add up with this. Um, but I, I think the point you make is actually quite important, Hugh. I think that particularly after Potter, who you know I've said many times on this, clearly he's a hugely talented manager and and engaged players, but he wasn't. A, a barrel of laughs, or uh, much in in terms of how engaging he was in, in press conferences. Pochettino is Pochettino is a likable guy who will be the face of the club again, uh, and I think that is quite important. Um, but ultimately, it's all going to boil down to how they manage the, the squad. And I, I have to admit, I, I keep looking at Chelsea, the team Chelsea is putting out at the moment. And who's on the sub? Who's on the subs bench? Who comes on? And I can't see where they spent the six hundred million pounds. Mm. That's a, that's a damning indictment of what it is. Look, it's, it's early days, but and you know, I'm sure players like Mudrik and 
you know, Enzo Fernandez has been probably the standout. But other than that, I, I can't. I, I, I'm forgetting where they where they've all gone. Like, who are they? <laughs> it's easy to forget there was a lot of them, and there's some who aren't. You know, weren't didn't make the Champions League league squad. But I, I, I don't know. It's been a, an absolutely mind bending. Uh, first year in in, uh, in charge for Bowley and Clear Lake. Yeah, absolutely. It has, and it looks like Mauricio Pochettino is going to join the party. So, fingers crossed, he can help settle things down for those Chelsea fans, many of whom, I think, after last night's result, have completely checked out if the players are already on the beach. I think some of those Chelsea fans booked holidays immediately after the final whistle to join them. Um, but listen, we, we need to talk about the bottom of the table. There are, as we speak now, Thursday morning, some important games coming this evening, but there were some important results earlier on this week. Um, Nottingham Forest uh, come from behind to beat Brighton. They're out of the relegation zone. First win since February the 5th. I, I personally think they capitalised on a lacklustre Brighton performance. That really showed how draining extra time at Wembley and penalties can be physically and emotionally. Of course, they had that FA Cup semi-final on Sunday. Um, but Forest do bounce back from four straight defeats and an 11-match winless run. And Tom, the city ground pays off. Let's put it that way. Um, they're going to need this ground to be very, very important because six of their seven Premier League wins have been at home. They managed to get one uh, yesterday evening, which I think was just a huge boost at the right time. Yeah, a huge boost for them to get out of the bottom three at this point. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, Hugh. I think it's going to come down to their their home form. We know their away form is, is absolutely dismal. And I guess if you look at the kind of matches they've got in the final five games, um, they've got two home games against Southampton and then Arsenal. Um, you know, that's possibly that Southampton game looks, looks a massive one. Arsenal, let's see if they're still in the race by then, that penultimate match. But their away games, Brentford, Chelsea, Palace, I mean, they all look pretty tough. OK, Chelsea is the, the probably the easiest game in the league right now. But even Forest, you know, away, it looks like one that's going to be tricky for them. So I think it's it's a tough run-in for them, I've got to say. It looks like a tough run-in, um, but that's a, a massive victory for them. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm I'm pleased for, for Steve Cooper as well. I mean, I, I really think that, you know, he's come under so much pressure this season at, at different times. Um, and, you know, we've seen so many clubs in that bottom half uh, jump ship. Um, panic, appoint caretakers, and I just think that kind of ability to kind of stick with him may just may just pay off. I, I I still think I still have them in my bottom three, given their given their run in, given their inability to pick up points away from home, but they're right in them, you know. And this is a, this is a really huge result against Brighton. It definitely gives them a lift. They've been on a pretty poor run for the last few weeks, um, and it just sets them up for that last kind of stretch. Just gives them a a really important boost just at the right time. Your old club's going to do it, Gregor. Do you think do they have what it takes? I mean, until this this result, uh, my answer would have been no, um, and it's still a massive maybe. <laughs> I don't it, because, as we say, their their away away form is so, is so bad that they probably are going to have to win both of those home games. Um, but this is enormous, yeah, enormous. And yeah, they caught Brighton at a good time. Yeah, Brighton had some chances, but Forest created lots of chances, and they they put in, you know, this was a bit more reminiscent of the the period, I think around kind of January time where they they looked like they were going to pull clear, and they had they looked like quite had quite a resolute block, and then they were a real threat on the break with Gibbs White and Johnson, um, and one other. In this case, it was uh, one you, um, Gibbs White's at the heart of almost everything that that Forest do well, 
and you know even after Johnson missing the penalty they responded well um huge 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 win like it, you cannot overstate that and they've given themselves a glimmer of hope I, I was at the game at, against Liverpool at the weekend and you just they just keep shooting themselves in the foot defensively and yeah they Brighton created chances and they, they missed a few. Matoma Matoma's leaps to mind where he was kind of slipped in uh inside the box and he just completely miscued his strike. So they did ride the luck a little bit, but um it was a, a much improved performance and I think, you know, on the balance for Forest probably just about deserved to win. Yeah, I think so. I do think so. And um Listen, it's going to be really intriguing to see how they do between here and the end of the season. Obviously, I think they're going to have to pick up at least one result away from home. That is going to be the difficult thing. But um, as you say, I think it gives them a lot more belief that they can do something before the end of the season. So we'll see exactly uh, where Forest pick up after that. There was an important game, a very important game earlier this week between Leicester and Leeds, which finished even substitute Jamie Vardy with a late equaliser. Uh, Leicester in the relegation zone leads one point above them, two places above the drop zone, though. Um, I, I want to say it was a, a very good Leicester performance, to be perfectly honest. Um, to take into another huge game this weekend against Everton, um, but there was a, a big Patrick Bamford chance late on. Was it even or did Leicester deserve all three points anyway? That's the question I'm labouring towards. Mm. What do you think, Johnny? Oh, a difficult one. I I think until the, the the final minutes, yeah, and then and then actually Leicester came out kind of mopping their brows with with relief because of that Bamford chance, principally, and, and that incredible save by Everson. But but yeah, I mean, I I I felt that it was it was a really really good performance building on um, building on the victory against Wolves, but. Because of that, probably a missed opportunity. Uh, I, I just, I've got a nagging feeling. Leicester will look back on that game, Ellen Road, and think that was the one that we had our chance to win, and things might have been different. Um, because they've got, they've got two. The, 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 the season comes now down to the next two games: Everton at home, and then Fulham away. Because after that, it gets, it gets pretty tricky for them. Liverpool, Newcastle. Um, maybe West Ham will, will, will be an okay one for them at the end. Um, but the shorter points, Dean Smith definitely definitely brought a lot of um, a lot of improvement, um, just individually and collectively. He's 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 sorted out um, a, 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 a pretty effective way of playing. That's that he's put Leicester back on the front foot. They're attacking again. Um, I think they do have. Issues with 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 finishing, and and if Jamie Vardy was a couple of years younger, they'd be fine. But he's not. So what you saw at Ellen Road was him having to be used off the bench, which was intelligent, and and he did his job when he came on. But before he came on, it was um, it was a lot of lovely build up playing, and and not enough once they reached the box. Um, so I, 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 it's it's just let it, I felt they had to win that one. Bottom line to to be sure of staying up. Now I just think it's it's, it's really in the balance, and it's going to come down to that Everton game, um, and it's going to come down to putting the ball in the net. We know Everton will Everton will be obdurate against Leicester and and try and sort of defend and then catch them with a set piece. Um, so it's a real clash of styles, and it will be up to Leicester to take their chance. In that in that match, but what I would say is that Dean Smith's done a really impressive 
job even in these two games. And even if Leicester go down, he must have already put himself in the frame to get the job on a on a more permanent basis. Yeah, Nacho limping off is be a bit of a yeah, worry as well. I mean, totally. He's, yeah. Although he blows, he blows hot and cold in front of goalie, he's been he's been pretty effective in the last couple of games since Smith came in and yeah. you know played a part in that goal too. Madison was sub- sublime. Uh, you know, Barnes still always provides a, a threat, but they probably are going to have to rely on Dak and Vardy now. And you know, Vardy getting his first goal in a long time was was a big mm. one. He almost got a second, um, or he thought he had had a second. Um, but I thought this was a, a brilliant game. Like two teams going absolutely at it and mm. having huge kind of swings in in the sort of you know dominance in the game. And as you say, Leeds could have Leeds could have nicked at the end after hanging on for a period in that second half themselves. So um, a real ding dong battle at the bottom. But no one really ultimately came out with the three points that they desperately craved. Gregor Leeds and Javi Gracia um, coming on under a lot of criticism from fans, I think, um, particularly when it comes to Gracia for not using Wilfred Nonto enough during his time in charge and in this game too. Uh, they're too open, which I know you've spoken about before as well. Um, are you seeing enough from Leeds United at the moment? Do you see enough in this game that makes you think, well, one thing or the other, they're definitely going down or they've got a good chance of staying up? I think I saw um, evidence that it's going to be extremely tight because I don't think they're particularly impressive defensively, and you know I, I think they can they can be creative and they can they can score goals, but much like Leicester, it's kind of blowing hot and cold all season. And I, I, I come back to the to the goal. Almost every goal, in fact, that we took conceding, you see <laughs> Liam, Liam Cooper somewhere at the. Don't want to <coughs> Somewhere in the kind of heart of it, he making lunging, desperate lunging tackles. Like it's all very desperate. Leeds defending, um, and yeah, they are open, but they've been open for since since Bielsa's time, and it's not. There's no one's really consistently um, changed that. So I think it's going to be wild for Leeds. It could be. I think it's going to be very tight because they're not convincing enough at either end of the pitch. Finally, on the podcast, Tom, I wanted to ask you about Spurs um, because since we last spoke and we did speak about Spurs uh, after that terrible result against Newcastle, the 6-1 thrashing, which Chairman Daniel Levy described as wholly unacceptable, he's decided to do something about it and blame the interim manager, Christian Stellini, uh, who was sacked after four matches in charge. Ryan Mason is, well, I say back as interim boss. He may have well may well have been appointed as interim interim boss for the first time, however you want to look at it. He says he's ready to step up as the full-time boss if needed as well. Very wishful thinking from Ryan Mason, but you've got to put yourself in the conversation, I guess. Um, the comments I've written down here, utter mess of a football club in need of a clear vision. Where are Spurs right now for you? Well, without any vision whatsoever. I mean, you know, obviously it's a club who are looking for a, for a manager, looking for a new director of football, uh, have no idea if their star player record goal scorer is going to sign a new contract. Um, you know, I mean, it seems incredible to me really, that only a few weeks ago, I mean, just before Conte departed, you know, Spurs were fourth, a point off third. Um, that they would have gone third if they'd hung on for that victory against Southampton. And just how quickly their season has kind of unravelled. Um, 
and I think you know it's important to make clear that I don't think that reflects well on Conte. I don't think we kind of you know take this as being oh Conte was holding the whole thing together. I think that the the team's confidence was so fragile, the way they were playing was so um, restricted that I think you know this is now a group of players who've kind of lost the ability to to think for themselves and to, to play anywhere near their, their capabilities. And we've seen that under Stellini. I mean, Stellini was a was quite well liked at the club. You know, I think he was a, a decent man, a decent coach, but clearly, you know, that appointment now looks pretty misguided. I think, you know, you basically have someone who who was almost just kind of Conte light, really. I mean, it just all the kind of methods and tactics of Conte, but without the kind of the charisma and the CV, you know, and I think you can you can fully understand why the players weren't particularly enthused by that idea. Uh, Mason will bring, you know, some connection again. You know, he's obviously academy player, came through the, the system at the club, um, kind of bleeds Tottenham, if you like. And, and I think that is kind of what Spurs are missing right now. They're missing some some feeling of connection with the fans. Um, it, it, it's a mess. There's, there's absolutely no, no hiding from that. I mean, you know, I think that Levy has kind of made, made some attempt this week to sort of try and uh, give some accountability. You know, he kind of said, I take full responsibility, albeit it was one of those kind of ones where I take full responsibility, although, you know, we should all take collective responsibility, that kind of thing. <coughs> um, and, you know, obviously the players have offered to reimburse uh, that, you know, the match tickets of all the fans who went to Newcastle, um, which kind of makes you think, what about all the other, you know, dismal Spurs performances this season? Um, it's a mess, but what Spurs need, I think, is a manager now. They need to start getting decisions right, you know, and, and the next decision that they make is obviously going to be a huge one with regards to the manager. If they can get a manager who comes in, then things can change pretty quickly. You know, I think you look at these kind of situations at Manchester United, for example, everyone was kind of saying this club is ungovernable. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it, it, it's completely unmanageable. The same with Arsenal. You know, you get a coach in who has the right ideas, the right kind of charisma, and things can quickly change. But Spurs need to start making some good decisions because, you know, this is a this is the culmination now of three or four years ever since Pochettino left of of a series of, of poor decisions being made uh, time and time again. Daniel Levy trying to shortcut his way to success. And this is now the, you know, the result. And they have to basically go back to what they were before, which is, the, which is a building club. You know, Spurs are not a finishing team. They're not a finishing team like Manchester City or Chelsea. They have to kind of get away from the idea they can just hire a famous manager and, and immediately, you know, lift trophies. That's not what they've ever been. You know, they, their strength is in building gradually and they need to get a manager who can do that again. Big game for Ryan Mason tonight. Spurs host Manchester United. So we'll see how he gets on. Who knows? Could be another big defeat. Hopefully not for the Spurs fans. Anyway, just very quickly before we go, Gregor, I know you wanted to talk about it. I think we've mentioned Burn. Uh, being champions in the championship. They'll be back in the Premier League next season. And last night, Sheffield United joined them. So two familiar names in recent years in the Premier League will be back in the top flight uh, only one name left. Uh, Luton, Middlesbrough looking very strong in terms of the playoff picture as well. So who knows, could get one of those uh, into the top flight. But just on Paul Hecking bottom and the job that he's done, um, they're a battling Sheffield United. If you wanted to talk about clubs with identity in the English football pyramid, there's certainly one. Absolutely. There's big echoes of of uh, Chris Wilder's Sheffield United in this in this side that Hecking bottom is. Um, has led, and it's you know I I, I was doing a, for a piece that's, that's going on online today um, a bit of research and they've you know there's uh, they've 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 signed one player uh, for a fee in the last five transfer windows. So the, this is basically a group of players that have been together for a very long time with a, the ad, addition of a few loans 
Um, and, and a lot of people will point to the fact that they were able to keep together the bulk of a squad that, that has played in the Premier League. Um, and like Burnley, that they are in receipt of parachute payments and how that kind of can skew the, the competitive balance in the league. But much like Burnley had a, an enormous overhaul to to to, to begin uh, under Vincent Company, it's been it's not been straightforward for Sheffield United at all. They've been much of the story of their season has actually been kind of synonymous with tales of relegation, uh, not promotion, because there's been under a transfer embargo. Um, there's been fears of entering administration. Uh, litany of bills have been unpaid, which has affected directly affected the. The, the the team and and the environment that Heckenbottom has has uh, been trying to to create, um, but they've kind of with a real togetherness they've they've fought back and they've kind of scrambled their way over the line even as Michael Carrick's Middlesbrough uh, and Luton Town more recently have been on a, you know remarkable runs and narrowed the gap to to second where Sheffield United have been for most of the season. So Heckenbottom deserves um, enormous credit. The, the club's hierarchy. Um, whose kind of financial mismanagement this season has has had a profound effect on the cl- on the on the players and staff, less so, but um, absolutely a, a magnificent job by Heckenbottom, who was you know a bright young thing in management um, at, at Barnsley, had been bruised by spells at Leeds United and and Hibs, and was Sheffield United's under twenty three coach until uh, eighteen months ago, so. Um, a great story for him personally as well, um, and a great achievement for Sheffield United. Yes, and another great story about promoting from within. Don't always need the sexy manager to come in to get a great side. Paul Heckingbottom done a great job, uh, and I'm going to look forward to seeing them in the Premier League next year. I think both Sheffield United and Burnley are going to be interesting to see what they do in the summer because... Um, you know, the Premier League has become, I think, a very, very difficult league to stay in, even with a good squad of players and a very good coach. But uh, best of luck to both of them and congratulations to both Paul Heckingbottom and Vincent Company. We will have more on the game podcast on Monday. Loads of games still to come between now and then. and Loads of great stories, I'm sure. Remember, if you enjoyed the podcast, make sure you're subscribed. Hit the notification button if you like. You won't miss an episode. And make sure you check out some of our great journalists at The Times. You can go online and download The Times app if you like, wherever you get your apps from. You can also subscribe to The Game, which is out each and every Monday in The Times newspaper at thetimes.co.uk forward slash The Game. Or as I always tell you, pick up a paper whenever you can. We'll see you on Monday. Enjoy your weekends. Take care. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is... AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. 
ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.